0: I mentioned we're going through the series through Ephesians. We are now going to read the passage. If you would stand with me, we're going to read it. I am going to read and start in verse 1 of chapter 5 because it is really important for the rest of what we're talking about today, even though Brian talked about it last week, kind of unpacking for us some of its meaning. Um, and it's starting in verse 3. Uh, Let's see here. Here we go. All right. Therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children and walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. Now our text. But sexual immorality and all impurity or covetousness must not even be named among you Take no part in the unfruitful works of darkness, but instead expose them. For it is shameful even to speak of the things that they do in secret. But when anything is exposed by the light, it becomes visible. For anything that becomes visible is light. Therefore it says, awake, O sleeper, and arise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. Pray with me. Lord Jesus, we are gathered in this particular place in our city, sacrificing a couple of hours on a Sunday to gather with people, to eat food with people afterwards, because we believe, we quite frankly believe your promise. That anyone who would have ears to hear will hear the good news of your reign and the reality of Of new life in you. We we confess though that it it can be confusing in our city, in our century, in our culture, and in our moment. We've been through so much and we need you to help us understand up from down, right from wrong, good from evil, beauty from ugliness. Because we don't just want to know you, we want to be like you. Because we believe that when we're like you, we are drawn nearer and nearer to you. And used more and more by you. So please, this morning, shine a little bit of light into our hearts. Give us hope and give us the power to change. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, you can grab a seat. Okay, so last week, uh, my family and I weren't here, we were out in Indiana on my my in-law's lake and it was glorious, it was amazing. We were on Zoom and got to hear what Brian unpacked for all of us, that last week, our union with Jesus radically shifts the hope we have for real change. That everything that we do in obedience to God is rooted in who He's already made us in Jesus. That new humanity is here, and so we don't need to live out the old ways that, if we're honest, just brought about difficulty and pain and hopelessness and addiction and all the suffering of our present age. This week, uh, you probably feel a bit more of that kind of, oh my goodness, the the commands of Scripture are so heavy and high, right? We could just be totally honest about that. None of us come in with the posture that like, oh yeah, check, 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 check. As we're going through these lists that the Apostle Paul says, these aren't you anymore. But in the second half of Ephesians, we see that Jesus doesn't merely want to save people but to make them good people. Did you know that? It's really easy to forget, but in the gospel, we are not merely free from the penalty of sin. You know, we're forgiven in Jesus. We are actually really free from the power of sin. To live new lives as people who have taken hold of real life. And the second piece of that is not just living freely and flourishing as we would imagine, but then we actually are used by God in ways that are filled with awe, that we can hardly believe the God of the universe would work through us in the midst of our city. And so, in the second half of Paul's letter to the Ephesian churches, these small communities in the ancient city of Ephesus, paul we cannot understand what Paul's saying. If we bring a lens that primarily says, you're forgiven, you're forgiven, you're forgiven, freed from the penalty of sin, but then given a bunch of commands to be good people. And there's all kinds of ways that in our 21st century Western American church, we try and reconcile those while still believing the gospel is primarily just about freedom from the penalty of sin. Freedom from judgment and guilt. So maybe, maybe you've heard, you know, God loves you, has a wonderful plan for your life, you are forgiven. And then who would, just, who would want to sin if you get that enough? And subtly there's this, there's this separation of gospel from transformation. And so we kind of settle for these ruts and these tangled uh, snares and believe that, I mean, just muster what you can and God forgives the rest. It's kind of the way that we approach it. That's a really small gospel. Really small. It's not big enough, good news, to say you can be a different you. And more than just being a different you, you can love being a different you. This is so needed, so needed, this bigger vision of the gospel in our day that many people in the church, outside of the church, all sorts of walks of life are going through what's called deconstruction. Most of you have heard this term by now, but deconstruction is the simple uh, process of reassessing previous assumptions about what is true to, to actually test and meet them out and say, are these things really necessary, or have I picked them up along the way? The reason that deconstruction is actually very needed in the church is because in Western American Christianity, we've picked up a whole lot of stuff that is not inherent and intrinsic to Jesus and the gospel. right? Uh, greed, materialism, uh, individualism taken to an extreme white supremacy, all sorts of things are not inherent to Christianity. Those things should be deconstructed. And we're going to take two weeks, uh, this week and next week, in this passage of Scripture to say, okay, how can we deconstruct the right things without deconstructing the wrong things and finding ourselves way far out into the deep end of the tempest of where our culture is, which really ends us up in darkness anyway. Two things that in my conversations with people, what I've read and heard, two things that people are in the process right now, and many of you may have asked these questions about what it really means to follow Jesus in its essence and what needs to be deconstructed, okay? The first one is we need to deconstruct Christian moralism We need to deconstruct Christian moralism. The second one is, we need to deconstruct cultural indoctrination. We need to deconstruct cultural indoctrination. That one's going to be next week. And there are verses in this passage that we're not going to talk about today um, that we'll deal with more next week. This week, we're going to talk about deconstructing Christian moralism. We need to deconstruct the right things. And I really wanted to title this one Um, Getting the hell out of heaven? Because that's in essence what we're deconstructing. There are ways in which the world, not in its good createdness, but the world in its hellish enslavement and hopelessness, has come into the church, which is supposed to be an embassy of the heavens, uh, the presence of God. We should want to deconstruct that stuff. Okay, let's dive in. Ephesians 3 through 14, uh, deconstructing the right things, getting the hell out of heaven, Christian moralism. Uh, First, we just need to get at the very basics and say, moralism is not the moral vision of the Scriptures. Moralism ain't the vision of the Scriptures. Most of you would probably say yes. I don't think any of us need convincing that moralism is not the goal. But what we need to see is that moralism is not merely about thinking we're better than others, right? This kind of snobbishness towards the character of those people and our people. But we need to see that moralism is actually about not needing God. There's this inner soul working that says, if I can be good enough, and I might, not, I might even acknowledge that Jesus helped me get good enough, But it's like he kind of gets me up on my feet and then I can walk on my own. What's really tragically missing in that is the kind of relational interdependence with God that Christianity and the gospel are all about anyway. As Fleming Rutledge writes in her book on preaching Jesus and the gospel, she says, whenever we are sure that we are among the righteous we immediately find ourselves among the arrogant. As soon as we are sure we are among the righteous, we are immediately among the arrogant. This is the kind of stuff that the church has, on a popular level, become very known for, right? Hypocrisy, judgmentalism, all sorts of things that we want to be as far away from as we can but until we can actually see how pervasive the water we swim in carries this kind of Christian moralism in the church, we will not do it successfully. Um, when we were starting the church uh, six or so years ago now, it was before we had ever launched anything, I was sitting down with a guy who was very interested in joining the Commons LA, and we talked about a lot of the overlap that we had in, what we thought uh, Jesus was up to in the city, and what kind of church community we need. And we had laid out a list of values and things that we wanted to embrace as a, a, a people, as a church. And one of them was predominantly about saying the kingdom of God is much bigger than any sort of one culture, and in a city as diverse as Los Angeles, if we believe that Christian faith in the church is a lot like any one given culture around us, we're going to be astray from our global Jesus. And he started asking questions, and at one point he said, surely you believe, though, that some cultures are more like heaven than others. What's not articulated expressly in that are assumptions. Assumptions about cultural differences and what those are rooted in, right? I mean, you can hear it. Surely some cultures are more like heaven than others. Not some cultures reflect heaven in different ways than others, but a qualitative statement that is ranking cultures together. That's what we're talking about when we say Christian moralism. It's this belief inherently that behavior dictates betterness. Now, why does this get us so far off on the wrong track? And how can we read this passage of Scripture? The reason that I'm doing all of this work to set the stage is because if we bring the wrong lenses to Paul saying, uh, but no sexual immorality among you, no impurity among you, If we don't first take off the lenses, we're going to read it with the wrong heart. The moral vision of the New Testament is not primarily moral, but relational. That is to say, ethics, which are a good thing, we need to care about what's moral, what's right and good and true and beautiful, is rooted in relationship. Immorality is not the main issue with the world. Very common assumption with Christian moralism. Separation is the main problem with the world. It's the reason we feel so lonely. It's the reason we feel so scared of being honest. That all finds itself under the big umbrella that scripture calls alienation. We read a couple weeks ago in chapter 4 that uh, sin and brokenness in the world flows from being alienated from the presence of God. We look all the way back into the garden in Genesis 1-3 through and we see that we were made, human beings, you and me, were made fundamentally for the presence of God, for a kind of awareness of His presence with us, openness to interaction with us, joy in his beauty and goodness among us, and serving submitted to his will, knowing that that's what's good and beautiful. But what happened? Death entered in. Why did death enter in? Death entered in because it's the outcome of created beings unplugging themselves from their source. We are lights who tragically thought our energy source was strong enough to sustain a human life from within, and that our cord and plug was just constraining us from real freedom the whole time. And so we turn away and yank ourselves out of the wall hard enough, and now human life, apart from God, alienated, is the slow process of dimming. You know, you, you've seen where you turn off a light bulb and it's, it just kind of dims slowly, right? It's not on-off. And so rather than deal with the reality that we're dimming, this world is dimming. The good that we see around us is dimming. The joy that we experience dims. The pleasure that we experience dims. The beauty that we experience dims. We just kind of extricate it to hospitals. Uh, we ignore it by muting certain channels of news, whatever it might be. Alienation, though, is what's wrong with the world, and the moral vision of Scripture flows from there. I'm going to read a passage from uh, Eugene Peterson. as a beautiful commentary on Ephesians, and he talks about this moral vision in Ephesians 4 and 5 in a really beautiful way. He says, The Christian life does not start with moral behavior. We don't become good in order to get God. But having been brought into the operations of God through the gospel, moral behavior provides forms for maturing in resurrection life. Life with God. Life that's really life. Moral acts are forms in the sense that a pottery vase gives form to a bouquet of flowers. In the sense that a bucket provides a container for getting water from a well into a kitchen in the sense that a bugle gives form to a compressed column of air so that taps the song can be played. Moral acts are forms for arranging and giving expression to resurrection. Let me put it really simply. The moral commands of Scripture provide boundaries and guidance for a beautiful life of love. The moral boundaries and guardrails in scripture, like we see here, are intended to create form and function and structure for the beauty of lives of love. You tracking with me? Moralism would say, oh, if I do these things, then I'm pretty much standing on my own two feet well enough that I don't actually need God anymore and he owes me. So when Paul says in verses 3 and 4, but sexual immorality and all impurity or covetousness must not even be named among you as is proper among saints. What a striking vision that Paul has such hope in the power of the gospel to free us from the power of sin that these things don't even need to be named among people who get the gospel and walk it out. And it's not the kind of arrogance that just withholds. It's the kind of life that's so consumed with love that these self-centered ways of using God's gifts aren't even in the picture anymore. Verse 4, Let there be no filthiness, nor foolish talk, nor crude joking, which are out of place, but instead let there be thanksgiving. So taking that, that, the false lenses... Christian moralism, and trashing them, and throwing them to the side, and saying, that's not the right thing. How do we we approach this with the kind of openness and honesty to the discomfort and the temptation to just say, well, that sounds like misery? Saying no to sexual immorality, impurity, and covetousness is not mere resistance, but refusing to use God and people for our own pleasure. Saying no to these things is not the end in and of itself. But if you are doing these things, guess what you cannot do by definition? Love. Because all sexual sexual immorality, that is any context for sex outside of marriage between a husband and a wife is the word here, porneia, anything outside of that is using a gift that God gave for your own pleasure rather than his glory. And you look to modern expressions of this, and technology has made it easier for sexual immorality with things like pornography, and we are participating in something that fundamentally entails the abuse and use of people, image bearers of God, as objects for sexual viewing. It's not fundamentally about that. It's about the fact that if you have used what God gave you for those purposes, you cannot be leading a loving life that God wants to get you set up for and walking in like Jesus. So the focus isn't even fundamentally on this itself. If you remember, we started reading in verses 1 and 2. I'm going to refresh us with verses 1 and 2. Uh, Paul says... No, but I don't have it right there. Therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children. Some of you are parents in the room. Uh, the number one way that we all as kids and our kids one day or presently learn from us is imitation. Oh, that's how you're supposed to do that. Oh, that's how you're supposed to do that. Oh, that's how you're supposed to do that. And One of the cutest things in the world is seeing a little human being try and emulate uh, a big grown-up human being, right? And so, like, we have a little kitchen next to our kitchen that's a kitchen toy for our kids, and they're in there like talking, like, oh, put the egg in the pan, and it's a little wooden toy egg from uh from the kitchen. There's there's like gospel spiritual truth that's wired into that. As you have been loved by God, it's not just something you receive. It's it's an awakening to help you imagine what a loving life can be like. Oh, love means when enemies try and harm me, I still can not retaliate, but pray for and love them as Jesus did on the cross for me. We are beloved children. Verse 2, and walk in love. There's the life being put into practice. As Christ loved us and gave himself up for us. So sexual immorality, impurity, covetousness. Let's define those real quick so that we understand what uh, the scriptures are actually calling us to abstain from so that we can live lives of love. I already defined sexual immorality. Um, the second one, impurity. Okay, purity is, is using something in accordance with its purpose. So impurity is to use something that is contradictory to its purpose. So a mercenary in war is someone who goes out to fight a battle, not for the vision of why the battle is being fought, but for money. So in essence... Impurity is not just stuff that's dirty in whatever our mind's eye might culturally connotate, but it's to take something and use it contradictory to its purpose, okay? If I have more time, we could dive more into that. But um, covetousness is the desire for something that you do not currently have. Uh, Greed, is one form of covetousness. In the 10 Commandments, says that you shall not covet your neighbor's wife or husband. These start to cut at the core of how we're used to living and how the very culture around us is like pointing us, directing us to live. How much of the motivational structure of America is built on personal gain and achievement, attainment? can be a good and right motivation. Proverbs says that a man's hunger works for him, like puts diligence into his hands because we realize you got to work in the structure that God has designed, right? But we've taken it to such an extreme that ads and structures and governance actually try and cultivate a kind of self-centered greed that could fall under this word covetous. And what Paul's saying can't happen is a loving life of obedience dedicated to God and neighbor. Think about the notion of retirement. Now, we live in a structure in the world, economic structure, where you will no longer have employable years in the eyes of an employer, right? At one point, they will just no longer hire you because they can pay someone less who's younger. We got to live within those confines but if our dream is to work hard so that we can kick our feet up in retirement and be the ones being served, I can't help but see how we're setting our hearts on something covetous of a certain kind of life. What if instead we said, "All right, I want to be able to save up and retire, neutral thing can be used for good or evil, so that I can live a life of service on into glory and no one needs to pay me for it. That sounds more like the vision of what Jesus would call us to walk in, in love, right? But so much of that just comes down to pure motivation. So, uh, the other three, foolish, or filthiness, foolish talk, crude joking. Um, we're not going to get into the specifics of those. While the first three are about using people for self-gain, these three are about manipulating people for self-gain. Filthiness, shock people for the sake of having some sort of power over them, Foolish talk, just talk and talk and talk in the original language is kind of the the meaning of it so that you can impress people or whatever your motivation might be. Crude joking. Say whatever you need to say in order to get get a laugh. All of these things are, are about using our words for ourselves. And Paul says, throw them out that a life of love can be cultivated. The antidote is surprising. Paul writes, the antidote here in the passage. So hopefully you're starting to feel the like, ugh, if you're like me, using your words for making people laugh, like all day long. Uh, Sexual impurity, uh, immorality, we're swimming in these things. The antidote to the poison might be surprising. Paul says it's thanksgiving. But let there be thanksgiving. This tethers our moral acts back into relational presence. Because thanksgiving fundamentally requires gift and giver. And you didn't give it to yourself if you're giving thanks. We sang a couple of songs at the beginning. Didn't plan on this, but as we were singing, it just kind of dawned on me. Um, It's your breath in our lungs, so we pour out our praise. Pour out our praise. Come thou fount of every blessing. The breath that we have is a portion of God's spirit. Every good gift that we have was not our own given to us. There is no pure meritocracy in God's creation. Don't know if you knew this. No matter how much you put in sweat equity, it was not merely because you put in sweat equity. All of it is a gift. Thanksgiving. How's Thanksgiving going as a posture in our hearts? After the last couple of years, cynicism, doubt, in this whole process of deconstructing, one of the most common motivators is just begrudgingness. But if we can see the invitation that we are swept up into a world and a church where God pours out blessings, And more than that, is eager to bless. The practice of thankfulness sparks an other-orientedness that can become the guardrails for a life of love. And I can assure you, practicing thankfulness to God and saying simply, thank you that I have breath in my lungs today. Thank you for the beauty of the mountains, the sunrise, the sunset drive out to Malibu or Santa Monica and just be blown away at the beauty of the flippant ocean? Are you kidding me? It feels like this infinite horizon. Beauty and beauty and beauty. It is a gift. Our participation in receiving the gift entails thankfulness. And then our hands start to go like this. And then our affections and desires start to change and then we see someone in need because we're not so self-focused and we are confronted with whether we're going to choose self or other and we know what the Spirit would want us to do and sometimes we fail and sometimes we succeed and God slowly is rewiring our hearts and reconstructing our lives that we would see he doesn't want moralism anymore We're freed from care and concern about failure and right and wrong to say, How can I love in thankfulness because all of this is a gift anyway? Um, This is where I think a lot of us just uh, totally fall on our faces. We are so self condemned. And and it's evidence that we're caught up in moralism because we think, you know, we see an act of love and we think, we are utter failures based on how many times we fail to choose the act of love. But God can actually, in the gospel, make us people who love loving. I saw a saint, it's just a term for Christian, if you're like, it's not a super Christian. Um, as Paul says here, is this fitting among saints? I saw a follower of Jesus in the last few weeks who um, was helping a mother in need and taking care of kids. And as I was there, I was like, wow, this is amazing. What, What could motivate actually restructuring and reorienting your day to help a single mom in need? And then picks up the phone to call a neighbor in need and is not begrudging at all Pretty joyful and loving the person on the other end of the line while holding a baby to another person. Guys, love is not about checking off a bunch of actionable boxes, but being swept up in the love of God for us and saying, dang it, I want more of that. I wanna be used for that. Like storing up money with a retirement plan, living for instant gratification and pleasure, endless doom scrolling on Instagram, none of it yields what we want it to yield. Like we could just identify that. Little acts of courage that are like waking up and opening our eyes more than some feats of strength and love on our own terms are all that God calls us to. Wake up to the reality every day and guess what you'll find? You love loving people and God a little bit more day by day. That's, that's it's shocking to me. Paul actually says here, and try to discern what is pleasing to the Lord. If there is anything in this that just blows out of the water the idea that God just wants right behavior and it's very obvious, these kinds of verses should do it. Paul, an apostle, the the guy that we imagine as a red telephone line to the heaven of heavens, says in your life, hey, try your best to discern what's pleasing to God. If that's not an acknowledgment that it is hard to live out this thing, um, ease up a little bit. Chill out. There's not pressure on us. The Spirit does not work by force and twisting our arm behind our back and saying, love people. It's wooing invitation from the Spirit of God to say, this is where real life is anyway. And as you allow these moral frameworks to structure your life, you'll say, I can't go out there to stuff like impurity and sexual immorality. Well, that leaves a lot of discomfort in here and unfulfillment those things suddenly become invitations to see that in Jesus all of our needs are met. All of our longings find a home. All of our angst finds peace. And when we are tempted to go outside of the moral forms of scripture, it's a reminder back in to say you will never find what you long for there. And so as we wrap up, we can see in these last verses, where Paul says, therefore it says, awake, O sleeper, and Christ, arise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. We see that the power for a loving life is simply our willingness. One author says that learning to live by grace is active Passivity. Active passivity. Going back again and again to the relational presence of Jesus that you and I have access to if we have trusted in Him, if we've bowed the knee to Him in faith, and say, I trust you. I have need right now. Help me. It's as simple as awaking from our slumber. Rising from death. And Christ will shine on us. Um, I don't know about you, but I want to be a people that view the Christian life not burdened by a kind of moralism where we feel like we need to hide from each other lest we be judged and disqualified and all sorts of things, but as simple as saying, my goodness, what love we get to participate in, and we can spur one another on to who we can be in Jesus in a way that's like waking up. Open your eyes. Don't you see that you're never going to find what you want out there? Crossing those moral forms. That life is actually found in Jesus. So, uh, I want to give us a few questions. Uh, What unlove do you need to bring out into the light of Jesus? What unlove, if, Sexual immorality, impurity, covetousness, uh, filthiness, foolish talk, crude joking are all signs of unlove in our attempts to use people. Where does it hit you? The answer is not reform. The answer is not pulling yourself up by your bootstraps. The answer is not hopelessness. The answer is awake, walk out into the light because you're already a child of the light. Honesty in community. Second question, where do you need to be known? You cannot follow Jesus. We cannot follow Jesus if we're so consumed with hiding, which is what Christian moralism pressures us into. We need to be fully known that we can be fully loved as we are. As much as we can be kind and hospitable to each other, all of us have gnawing in the back of our hearts and minds. If you really knew this about me, I do not know what you would think, how you would treat me. Guess what the only solution is to that? Bringing it out. I can assure you, if you are mistreated in that, come talk to me, because that's anti-gospel. But what I think you'll find is reception, compassion, kindness, and stirring hope in each other as we look to Jesus. Uh, Lastly, where do you got to be thankful? Not as a moralistic act, but as a reminder that our very existence in the life that we desire is found, sparked by remembering everything we have as a gift from our gracious Heavenly Father anyway. What can you be thankful for? Whether it's the breath, the gift, the promotion, uh, the people in your life, whatever it might be, okay? And at our discussion table during lunch, this is the question that we're going to be talking through, and you can come back and process this with us if you want further application. How do we cultivate real experience of Jesus in our everyday lives rather than mere head knowledge of him that leads to moralism, okay? All right, I'm going to pray. Jesus, um... We confess that we, all of us, are tempted toward right behavior and achievement in our faith. We so quickly make the gospel into uh, self-help. Would you help us to be a people who walk by grace, who walk in the light, who embrace the light? who see Your commands in Scripture not as moralism, but as moral forms that we could actually love people well and not be hung up in that. And lastly, I pray for my friends here and for my own heart that You would help us to see the Gospel is so big that You do not merely want to free us from the penalty of sin, of the feeling of judgment, But you want to save us from the power of it. That we would no longer feel ensnared to what will destroy us, what undoes our humanity. So wherever we find ourselves this morning, would you give us hope and thankfulness on the gifts that we've received? Um, Help us to rightly deconstruct uh, Christian moralism and receive in full proof the gospel of grace.